Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey everybody, welcome to a new episode of Undying Light. I am your host Alex, and we are cracking at it. The Book of Revelation again, as we have been for many, many months now, and uh, this entirely long series has been going on for a very long time, but we are nearing the end. We have today's episode, and then two more, chapters 21 and 22, and then we will have a round panel discussion, which will be just a um, casual discussion on the different views of eschatology and just kind of a wrap-up of this whole series and we'll put a nice little bow tie on it and we'll pack it away because uh i am ready to move on being this far in the book of revelation and uh all of the work that i've put in elsewhere it is time consuming so with that, I am uh, moving into chapter 20 today. We are going to look at some of uh, these different views that we're going to get out of the first nine verses. Um, well, really, more or less the first three, but uh, we'll get um, verses one through ten, maybe, maybe nine, give or take. Uh, really talking about the thousand years and the defeat of Satan. Um, the judgment before the white throne should be fairly quick. Uh, that's 11 through uh, 15. We kind of already talked about that in considerable length. So, but we will um, dig into it. Now, this text itself isn't broken down as traditional Bibles will have it. Your Bible, you would open to chapter 20 and you'll see verses 1 through 6, and then you'll see a section. Uh, the defeat of Satan, which is 7 through 10, and then the judgment before the white throne, 11 through 14. However, there's a f there's kind of some interlaying topics that go across this. So uh, the first three verses really focus on the um, view of the thousand years, and then verses 4 and 6 is reigning with Christ, and we will see uh, the defeat of Satan there, and then we get Gog and Magog, verses 7 through 10. And then to finish off the chapter, the final judgment. So 
it's broken down into four sections versus three. Now, one of the things that uh, we have been um, really encouraging people through this is to spend time digging into this text. If you are listening and you are, you know, listening to learn stuff, then by all means, continue doing so. But invest in extra sources because this podcast alone is completely not exhaustive of the content that's available. There are different views of eschatology. Therefore, there are um, just tons of Bibles or tons of books written by theologians on these um, passages and different views. So my encouragement is always to pick up your Bible, read it, and grab some commentaries, read them, and and maybe even invest in other uh, views. You know, if you're an amillennialism, then you know, get to know the premillennialist or the postmillennialist view a little bit better, so you can see, you know, the differences. And uh, as always, this is more of a fun topic. This isn't anything that uh, salvation is bent upon in terms of where you fall and what camp. It doesn't, in fact. Um, change your hermeneutics as you read the Bible, and it can't alter uh, how you view some passages, but we try to incorporate, as long as you have the most fundamental truth built into your theology that Jesus Christ is Lord, God raised him from the dead, and he will return, then you are good to go. Everything beyond that we can add to to it being a debatable topic, but I think at its core, that's the most essential truth that we need to come out of this entire series of eschatology is that our promised Messiah came, died for our sins, and will return for his church. That is that is the crux of eschatology. So we get into this topic at hand today, chapter 20, um, verses 1 through 3, and really verses 1 through 9, uh, as we will kind of delve into... Um, the different views on a thousand years. Uh, so we're going to look at the pre-millennialist argument and then the amillennialist response to that. Uh, and then we will uh, move forward from that. So just as you guys know, we are listener-based support show. And so you can uh, support us via patron. And for a dollar a month, you can get access to all of our content behind the scenes and everything else that we do as a ministry. Uh, a lot of things coming down the pipeline, a lot of stuff that I am working on diligently with some other people and uh, working on new merchandise, working on new um, kind of approach to content delivery and all of that. So we will more than likely not put all of our eggs into the Instagram bucket, but we will be um, definitely all in on looking at how we can grow and utilize the, uh, the patron end of it, because we find that that's where we get a lot better, a lot more engagement and people are more apt to helping contribute to this ministry in that field. So literally a dollar a month, you get access to everything behind the scenes. If you want to give more, by all means, you're ob- you're more than obligated or more than willing to do so. But uh, I would just pray that you will come alongside and join us. And uh, I don't think you would be disappointed. If you like this show, then you'll like any of the other content that we produce. So by all means, come and join us. It would be worth your while. So that is the patron spew. You know, it's my little 
pre-show commercial, if you would. Uh, I've actually thought about running and, and recording some commercials and like dropping them in the middle of the show and stuff. But, you know, there's podcasts that do that. That's not really my niche. I just hammer out the material and I give you the content and move on. And uh, so I thought about it, but meh, well, maybe down the road. Some of the updates coming, you guys already know, we will be doing this series wrapping up at the end of August. And then in September, we will do a short series on some of the lesser known or less popular people in the Bible. From that, we're going to move into exegeting some books of the Bible. And we'll go through uh, probably the New Testament and, uh, and then wrap back around and go through the Old Testament. That should take us a long time to do. So, uh, you know, it's taken me months to be in the book of Revelation. So I can envision to say we'll do a couple books a year at that at that rate. So that should probably eat the rest of the show in, in its lifetime, if you would. Um, we will have a short break for Christmas every year because I, I love doing a little Christmas special. So we'll do a little four or five episode special through Christmas. So that's it. We're going to get into the content, guys. I'm going to read uh, the first six verses of chapter 20, and then we will unpack what is really happening here. John writes, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years, and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were ended. After that, he, mu he must be released for a little while. Then I saw the thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for their word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received the mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." The rest of the dead did not come until after come to life until after the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the only is the one who shares the in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So yeah. We, we, we have some stuff to unpack here, and rightly so, because I think if we were to um, just let this go at, at, without really explaining it, there's a lot um, here that can get extremely confused. You know, we've talked about all of these various um, views throughout this whole series. We actually did a show on each of the views at, all the way at the very beginning of this series. So you can go back to, I think, September of last year. To that time period and you can listen to all four uh views we did one on uh post-millennialism on the two pre-millennialist views and an amillennialist which i had a guest on for that show so by all means go listen to those and really unpack it but we're going to get into this particular text here because it does have some of the most weighted um, views to these particular um, understandings of eschatology this particular passage of scripture is often used and viewed differently by the individuals in these camps. And again, it comes down to the hermeneutics being applied here. So as we have done thus far in our reading of Revelation, where we have looked at things as being signs, symbols, and um, 
and, uh, and and trying to look at things from a non-literal interpretation and trying to utilize the numbers to be applied to a general stance, we will, again, apply that same view to this. So let's uh, dig into this because we have a lot going on here. Uh, when it comes to eschatology, the doctrines of the end of times, Bible-believing Christians hold differing views of about uh, uh, different views about the thousand years that are being referred to here in these first few verses. While there are innumerable variations, we can identify three views regarding the millennium. This is the premillennialum uh, view that holds that Christ returns before the millennium, the thousand years. Uh, and then within this, there are two versions of premillennialism. The historical view holds that the resurrected Christians will enjoy a thousand years of earthly bliss after Jesus returns, and the dispensational holds that a restored Jewish state will reign with the Messiah for a literal thousand years. A second main view is post-millennialist, and this sees as Christ is returning after the thousand years. In general, post-millennialists believe that the thousand years is a symbolic period towards the end of the gospel age when the church has conquered all other religions throughout the world. Then there is a third view. This is called amillennialism, which refers to or has the meaning of no millennium. And as if you refer back to that episode, we actually talked about this name being applied as being revealed eschatology would be a better understanding to this name. The view actually holds that the thousand years is a symbolic way of speaking of the entire present age between the ascension of Christ and Christ's glorious return. In some, the premillennialism believes that Christ returns before the thousand years. Postmillennialists believe that Christ returns after the millennial era of crowning victory for the church. And the amillennialist teaches that Christ returns at the end of the church age, which is numerically symbolized as a thousand years. It is important to note that these differing views do not justify deep rifts among believers who will anticipate Christ's return. Church leaders hold opposing millennial views may cheerfully serve in the same denominations and even congregations. Still, these issues are significant, and the teaching of the controversial Verses that open uh, Revelation chapter 20 warrants careful attention. In order to give this attention uh, and still consider the practical significance of this material, we will approach chapter 20 uh, in the four sections that I had suggested early on. The building of uh, the binding of Satan for a thousand years, the reign of the saints with Christ, the great battle of Gog and Magog, and the great white throne judgment. So that is how we will break down chapter 20 for you. So I'm going to read through some of the notes that I have on the pre-millennial argument. And then we will look at the response by the amillennialist. So in order to handle the material in Revelation 20, we must come to conclusions regarding the nature and timing of the thousand years, which is mentioned six times in verses 1 through 9. Since premillennialism has been most the most popular evangelical approach in recent years, it serves to begin with this understanding of the millennium. 
Revelation 20 begins with John seeing an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon and the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. The premillennial view of these holds that Satan is bound for a thousand years after the second coming of Jesus Christ. Thus, Christ's return is premillennial. There are three main arguments in these verses for the premillennial view. Other points are made verses 4 through 9. The relationship to chapter 20 to chapter 19, the nature of Satan's binding, the question of the literal or symbolic understanding of the number 1,000. According to the premillennial view, Revelation chapters 17 through 20 follow a chronological progression so that the first great harlot Babylon is judged and destroyed, chapter 18, then the beast and the false prophet are conquered when Christ returns, chapter 19, and then the thousand years begin as described in chapter 20. After this millennial period of earthly blessing, there will be a chief, there will be a brief crisis in Satan's final rebellion, and then as chapter 20 ends, the final judgment arises. The second argument employed by some premillennialists hold that the number 1000 must be interpreted as a literal period of history and that this precludes us from assigning it to the church age, which has already lasted much longer than a thousand years. The third argument concerns the language used about Satan's binding in Revelation 21 and verse 1 and 2. The angel comes from heaven with a great chain. He seized the dragon, and bound him for a thousand years. Now, according to Robert Thomas, this passage requires a complete termination of Satan's activity in the sphere of the earth. This cannot seriously be claimed about our present age, to which the Bible itself ascribes a wide range of satanic activity, oppression, and power. Therefore, the thousand years of Satan's binding must result from and take place after Christ's return from heaven. Based on these arguments, the chronologic, chronologically of Revelations 19 and 20, the literal view of the number 1000 and the absolute binding of Satan, the pre-millennialists look for a golden age on earth that follows the return of Christ. Dennis Johnson describes it, believers who will have received their new sin-free, curse-free bodies will be will have returned with Christ to earth and will rule with him because of Christ's rule on the present age during that time much though not all of the curse against human sin and justice violence disease our own death will be radically suppressed so that is the premillennialist argument for these chapters now we will look at the amillennialist response to these verses the most powerful critique of premillennialism is made today by those who are holding to the amillennialist position, who teach instead that the thousand years of Revelation 20 is a symbolic description of the entire church age. This assessment begins by denying that Revelation 20 should be understood as following chronologically from 19. Instead, it understands that these visions are recapulating the history of the spiritual oppression opposition to Christ. Revelation 19 shows the judgment of the enemies of Christ who were introduced into the symbolic histories of chapters 12 through 14. In reverse order from their appearance, 
the harlot Babylon is first conquered and her first and her judgment takes place to make way for the marriage of the feast of the lamb, which occurs in the return of Christ revelation 19, six through 10. Then the career of the beast and his false prophet are summarized and they are destroyed by Jesus returning on the white horse verses 11 through 21. At this point, there is much, there is one more enemy to be defeated. The dragon Satan and chapter 20 reveals his defeat and the final judgment in the return of Jesus. These visions therefore follow one another, not chronologically, but topically the judgment of Babylon, then the beasts, and finally Satan. The context contains ample evidence to show that these visions must describe the same period of history rather than successive periods. For instance, Revelation 19.15 refers to, quote-unquote, the nations being struck down by Christ's rod and subjected to the wine press of God's wrath. If Revelation 20 chronologically follows this event, it is difficult to see how these nations can still exist when Revelation 20, verse 3, states that they will no longer be deceived and when they are gathered for the final battle in, in verse 8, moreover, the battle described in 7 through 10 is clearly the same battle depicted in chapter 19. Both battles involve the nations gathering at the end of history to war against the Lord and his saints, only to be destroyed by a fire coming from Christ. Notably, on both accounts, John draws material from the Old Testament passages, Ezekiel 39, when the prophet foretells doom of the armies of Gog and Magog, Ezekiel 39, and referring to Revelation 20, verse 8, and calls for the carrion birds to eat their flesh. Since chapters 19 and 20 provide complementary visions of the same event, chapter 20 uh, does not follow chapter 19. And its vision of the millennial millennium does not follow, but precedes the return of Jesus. Second, we consider whether the thousand years of Revelation 20 must be viewed as a literal period. We've noted all throughout Revelation that these visions beg to be interpreted symbolically and not literally. This is true of numbers such as the sevens, tens, or a thousand, just as it were true of features in this passage, such, such as the angel's chain and the image of Satan as a dragon. Satan is by nature an angelic spirit who could not be bound by a physical chain, however stout. If the chain and the dragon imagery of these verses is manifestly symbolic, it makes little sense that the number 1,000 must be literal. This symbolic meaning of this number is not difficult to discern since a thousand years represents a long but definite span of time. Moreover, noting that a thousand is a perfect cube of the number 10, we see that this number represents perfect completeness, and thus the millennial is a long but definite period in which the work of the gospel is completed. The most important premillennial argument against pertains to the actual binding of Satan in uh, the first three verses. Here, the postmillennialist will argue with the premillennialist view in stating that this binding cannot describe a situation of the entire church age, but hold that this binding must be understood as an action that completely curtails the actions of Satan. 
which plainly is just not the case. This is why the post-millennialists ascribe the thousand years to a golden age of total victory at the end of the church age, rather than the entire church age itself. The amillennialist reply to this binding of Satan, in fact, describes the entire age of the gospel with great accuracy, showing the spiritual results of Christ's first coming with his conquering death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. And the key to understanding the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church in this age is the binding of Satan as a result of Christ's saving work. Christians today may not realize how much of a revolution resulted in the first coming of Jesus. In the Old Covenant, God called Abraham from Yor of the Chastis and then brought salvation primarily to the nation of Israel. The spread of the gospel to the nations was promised but never begun before Christ. All of the nations except the Jews were bound in darkness by Satan, Acts 14, verse 16. Paul said, in past generations, God allowed the nations to walk in their own ways. But in the coming of Christ, John 1, 9, informs us the true Light, which enlightens everyone, it was coming into the world. The gospel age has been seen the mighty spread of the salvation to every continent and every nation. Lands previously dominated by Satan and spiritual blindness and evil. The record of missionary expansion during the church millennium precisely fits the effects of Satan's binding. This is what William Hendrickson writes. Through this gospel age, the devil's influences on earth are curtailed. He is unable to prevent the extension of the church among the nations by means of an active missionary program. During this entire period, he is prevented from causing the nations, the world in general, to destroy the church as a mighty missionary institution. In regions where the devil has been allowed to exercise almost unlimited authority during the Old Testament times, he is now compelled to see the servants of Christ gaining territory little by little. When one asks how Satan can be described as being bound during our present age, there are two answers. The first answer notes that Revelation 23 specifies the particular effect of Satan's binding so that he might not deceive the nations any longer. This verse does not state that Satan is bound in every way or that he is physically kept in a chained cell but it symbolizes that he is bound in in a particular way of no longer being able to prevent the belief in Jesus. Cornelius Venema writes this, This is the great purpose and effect of Satan's binding so far that the explicit language of Revelation 20 is concerned. Satan is bound so that he can no longer prevent the spread of the gospel among the nations nor effectively deceive them. This vision confirms that the teaching of that the period between Christ's first coming and his second coming is one in which the gospel of the kingdom will powerfully and effectively go forth to claim the nations for Jesus Christ. The second way to see this binding of Satan depicts the church age is to note how this vision echoes the language used elsewhere in Satan's defeat of Christ's first coming. Consider Matthew 12, 29, where Jesus spoke to Satan in this way. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder the house. The word for bind is the same one used here in Revelation 20. And the plundering of Satan's house undoubtedly refers to the salvation of sinners through the gospel. No 
uh, other New Testament passages use similarly forceful language in describing victory of Christ's first coming. In John 12, Jesus spoke of his approaching death on the cross. Now is the judgment of the world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. John 12, 31. Earlier, Jesus spoke of Satan's downfall when the 70 evangelical evangelists returned from preaching to the gospel and declaring, I saw Satan falling like lightning from heaven, Luke 10, 18. This fits the vision of Revelation 12 in which Satan, was uh, the great dragon, was thrown down, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to earth. Afterwards, the saints conquered by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. Hebrews 2.14 states that Jesus became man and that through the death he might destroy the one who has power of death, that is the devil. Paul said that by the cross, Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and it put them uh, to open shame by triumphing, triumphing over them. Although this language unmistakably speaks of the stripping of Satan's power by Christ's death and resurrection and granting the authority to Jesus in his ascension, so that his gospel may go forth through the church. None of these dramatic statements deny Satan's continued activity in the current age. According to the New Testament, Satan still uh, blinds the minds of unbelievers. Second Corinthians 4, 4 prowls like a roaring lion. First Peter 5, 8 and is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesians 2, 2 and oversees the cosmic powers of this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil for the sake of warfare against the church, Ephesians 6.12. Satan remains a dreadful and active woe, and when it comes to the work of the missions and to the witnessing power of the church among the nations, Satan is described as being cast out, fallen, thrown down, destroyed, disarmed, and bound. All of these terms are in line with the language used here in Revelation 20.1-3 and are associated with the first coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, involving the restraint of Satan for the work of the missions and the extension of the witnessing church among the nations. So in light to all of this and this overwhelming, overwhelmingly biblical evidence here, a careful study of the binding of Satan reveals the thousand years is, a symb- is symbolically depicting the church age in the gospel expansion. This argues for the amillennialist view as opposed to the premillennialist, which ascribes that the situation to an earthly reign after Christ's coming, and also to the postmillennialist view, which sees Satan as bound only at the end of the church age. The visions in Revelation 20 begins with John seeing an angel coming down from heaven, holding this key to the bottomless pit and to a great chain. He sees the dragon. In chapter 9, We saw the abyss and the great dwelling place of evil spirits, which in that case was opened by an angel to allow the calamities on the earth. Now, Satan is symbolically locked in the abyss. The angel brings down a chain that Satan cannot break with a key that locks the dungeon so that the devil is thrown in, shut in and sealed. This vision shows the complete and sovereign control of that is being exercised over Satan. God's plan for salvation must be fulfilled, and to this end, God's spiritual enemy is placed under wraps. This binding of Satan is not permanent, however, since after the thousand years he must be released for a little while. This statement also confirms to the New Testament 
conforms to the New Testament teaching and confirms that the thousand years described in the church age. Paul wrote that before Christ's return, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. This describes the beast to which the dragon has been calling out uh, out of the sea in Revelation 13.1, who wages a worldwide persecution of Christians and gathering the nations for her last battle. Paul is clear that this final time of great tribulation, characterized by Satan's wicked deception, occurs at the end of the gospel age, just before Christ's return. This correspondence to the little while after the thousand years when Satan is released so that to deceive the nations briefly before the final battle. From this perspective, Christians can look back on history knowing that Christ's first coming, he defeated the devil and limited his authority. And we look to the future and know that for a little while, Satan will return and deceive the nations and persecute the church. What is the most important now is our awareness of the current situation when Satan is bound so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. This defines our great opportunity in this life, our great calling as the church of Christ in the world, and our glorious privilege in serving in service to the strong Savior who has defeated and bound our dreaded enemy. This is precisely Jesus' emphasis as he commissioned his disciples before sending into heaven. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always until the end of the age. As Jesus put it at the end of John's gospel, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. This brings us into this context of being servants of the gospel. Now that we understand Satan's uh, premise and his inability to uh, hinder the gospel call, this should give us Christians motivation to go into the world and share the gospel. We are now servants called by Christ to go forward and to preach without this fear that Satan will hinder us. This doesn't mean that Satan can't do other things, but he cannot hinder the gospel from being pushed out into the world. So as we move along in Revelation now, I, um, before we get to this um, point, I want to clarify you know, one thing. Please make sure you go back and listen to the first half of this show if you have questions on the millennial reign. And if you have even more questions, then go back and listen to the separate episodes where we discussed each one more in depth. Because now we will be moving in, and I'm going to read verses 7, and I'll just read through four, uh, through 15 because it's not very long here, and we'll go on. So we have the defeat of Satan uh, and the judgment before the white throne, which we've already really kind of talked about a couple of times. We talked about it last week, uh, but we'll go back through and just highlight a few pieces here for you. Uh, and when the thousand years had ended, Satan will be released from the prison. We've talked about that and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints that the beloved city, but fire came down from heaven and consumed them. Now that's ending verse nine. And I want to make sure too, that we understand the contextual premise of this show we had examined verses 1 through 9 in, in an in overview method, and we examined how the thousand years applies, and we examined how Satan would then come out. Now, we will talk again about 
this great rebellion verses seven uh, through 10. And then we will talk about the judgment of the white throne. Now, verse 10 starts with this. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Verse 11. Then I saw the great white throne and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away. And there was no place uh, was found for them. And they saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne with the books opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the book and the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to all that they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in him. And they were judged, each of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. That is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right. So we have this uh, Satan's rebellion. We're going to talk a little bit about that. And we're actually going to really more or less focus on Satan's defeat. Uh, And then we're going to talk a little bit about this forever and ever aspect. Uh, And then we're going to look at this final judgment because there's a couple things here that are interesting to pull out. When we tell the people of God that God's beloved city, because of their fiery defense of her from Satan's attack, but fire came down from heaven and consumed her. In the Old Testament, God judged Sodom and Gomorrah with fire, just as he sent down fire to protect his servant Elijah from the soldiers of the wicked king Azahiah. Here and as elsewhere in Revelation and in the New Testament, Christ's coming results in the immediate defeat of all foes who afflicted the church. Paul wrote that God will grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in the in the flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who did not know God and on those who did not obey the gospel. Ezekiel specul- uh, specified that the fire would fall on Magog both to defend God's people and to glorify his name. This point emphasizes that the church does not fight to defend herself. Revelation 12.11 describes her warfare as trusting in Christ's blood, bearing testimony of God's word, and offering our lives to seal our witness. This is the conquering power of the early church, which suffered greatly in its refusal to grant deity to Caesar, but displayed a power of grace that the world had never known. Likewise, the patient, suffering faith of the end times church will glorify God when history concludes with our blessed hope and the peering of glory of our great Savior and God, Jesus Christ. This particular emphasis on this vision is the defeat and destruction of Satan himself. This will complete the judgment section that began in Revelation 17 with the judgment of the harlot Babylon in chapter 17 through 18. We saw the judgment of the beast and the false prophet in chapters 19. And now the witnesses uh, now witnesses the judgment of Satan himself. John writes that the devil who had been deceived was then thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they were to be tormented forever and ever. Notice the devil is primarily judged for deceiving the nations, reminding us again that the church's ministry of truth through God's word is always the world's greatest need. The greatest victory of history is Jesus' conquest of, by, uh, of sin by his blood, and the victory is joined with his defeat of Satan, the great tyrant and deceiver of the world. 
Knowing this, Christians face the future with great hope, since God has ordained the judgment and the condemnation of Satan. This judgment is anticipated in Matthew's gospel when demons whom Jesus had had cast out admitted knowing their coming judgment. What have you to do with us, O Son of God? They cried out. Have you come here to torment us before the time? Matthew 8, 29. Jesus said that his time had not come, but Revelation shows that history ends with the greatest agents of evil receiving a terrible and just punishment from God. So not only is Satan apprehended, but he's thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet were. Satan is a spiritual being, so the language is being uh, thrown into a lake of fire symbolic. This shows that whatever bodily suffering sinners may experience in hell, the greatest torment will be spiritual. Satan, together with his servants, will be tormented day and night forever and ever. This verse makes it clear that hell involves never-ending conscious torment, a dreadful thought to human beings. Yet, still, the clear teaching of Scripture, Grant Osborne writes, those who are offended by such teaching have too low of a realization of the terrible nature of sin and the nature and the natural response the divine holiness must have towards it. Revelation has reminded us that God's provision of his son Jesus Christ to die for the forgiveness of our sins, those who suffer the torment of the lake of fire, together with the with Satan and his beasts, are all those who are hard head hard headed toward their God and refusing to repent and scorned the Savior who shed his blood to them to offer of forgiveness. We're going to talk a little bit about this forever and ever real quick. Uh, and then we're going to scope through the final judgment as we've kind of talked about um, in previous episodes. And uh, we really dug into it a little bit in the Matthew 24 and 25 series. So we won't spend a ton of time there. But I really want to clarify this forever and ever piece. These final words of this vision are pungent and decisive forever and ever. This constitutes the greatest warnings to those who enter into rebellion with Satan, revealing in sin and rebellion against God's rule. Their punishment is as eternal as God himself is. Sin, being an offense to God's justice and holy nature, is eternal, and so are the consequences. The same forever and ever provides the Christian with the ground of the most joyful hope. Just as Satan and sin played no role in the glorious creation of all things, so they will have been completely removed from the, the completion of all things and the glory of Jesus Christ. Our own sin will not only be forgiven, but actually removed. There will be no adversary to accuse us, but only God's justice to demand our justification through faith in Jesus Christ. There will be no enemies to fear or hate, but as Isaiah foresaw, they shall not hurt or destroy in all of my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So what is the meaning of this forever and ever to believers now? It means that we have an antidote to the crippling fear of persecution that might otherwise undermine our faith. Why would we forsake Jesus Christ amid the afflictions of this world when we know how the story ends? Jesus wins. Why would we abandon his victorious cause even though it may entail suffering for a little while in tribulation and even if it even if discipleship to him requires us to renounce our sinful pleasures of of a condemned world the forever and ever in revelation 20 
warns the uh, uh, warns the unbeliever not only of the fertility of the rebellion against God, but even more about the holy the folly and refusing of the only Savior who can deliver us from a judgment that our sins deserve. Jesus promises, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So that is the the premise. Satan will be punished eternally, forever, forever and ever. For as long as God is eternal, Satan will be punished. And that is the hope that Christians can take into this beautiful final block, if you would, of our time together in eschatology. It's this wonderful mindset that we know that Christ is in control. He is in it. He is overseeing everything. And at the appropriate time, Satan will be cast into the lake of fire and tormented forever and ever. So as we move along, we get to another picture here of the uh, final judgment. And this is where we see back in Matthew 25, the separation from the sheep and the goats. Uh, and John expands here for us as we will dig into. As the Apostle John presents this final vision in Revelation 20, he wants his readers to face the reality of the final judgment. John wrote, Then I saw a great white throne on him who was seated on it. The Apostle Paul warned that God has fixed a day in which he will judge the world. Jesus defined this day as the day of his return, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and with his angels with him, then he will sit on the glorious throne. Bruce Millen comments, despite the humorous dismissal of the last judgment in our culture, its comparative neglect in such theological in much theological reflection, and the virtual silence on the subject in the modern pulpit, it is going to happen. Whatever clever arguments may be made to urge us not to expect God's judgment, Revelation 20, verses 11 through 15, strictly upholds the words of the Nicene Creed. Christ will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead. John describes by begins by describing the judgment seat, and then I saw a great white throne. When John was invited into heaven, the first thing he saw was a throne. And now, at the end, it fills his vision. It is a great throne. It exudes majesty and authority. As a white throne, it radiates perfect purity, holiness, and incorruptible righteousness. When Isaiah saw his vision from the heavenly courtroom, the seraphim were crying, Holy, holy, holy. The great white throne conveys the same message of infinite, perfect justice. Revelation 20, verse 11, adds... The striking statement from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and there was no place was found for them. This is the imagery connects to earlier language in Revelation, to which are tied to Christ's return. After the six seals opened, John saw a cataclysmic end to the physical order, and the great earthquake and falling of the stars. The sky vanished like a scroll. He said, This shows the upheaval. Uh, shows the upheaval of the results of the absolute holiness and majesty of God when his throne is brought into the fallen world. The prophet Micah spoke this way, saying that God, when God comes down to earth, the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire. The reason for the fleeting image uh, of creation was the transgression and sins. Because it falls under the curse of the corruption of sin, J. Ramsey Michaels puts it puts points out that Mother Nature must be must have taken a beating in Revelation. How ironic in this light 
that the anti-Christian New Age movements are idolatrously fixed on the on the natural world that is destined to shelter, destined to shatter in the coming of the glory of God. So we get to this scope of the final judgment, as John writes, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. The meaning of this is that every human who has ever lived will stand in his judgment, in this judgment. Millen notes this, the judgment because it is the final act of history and the gathering up of the human story is necessarily universal. The Lord of all life now passes all life under his all determining review. John emphasizes the general resurrection for all the dead to stand before God's throne. Jesus said that in hours coming, when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, the university universality of this resurrection is conveyed in Revelation twenty thirteen. And the sea gave up her dead who are in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead who are in it. And the ancient world burial, burial was considered important to one another's life after death. Dying at sea, therefore, was a troubling fate. Yet, at Christ's return, the sea will yield up all who are dead in her. Though their bodies were thought to be lost, moreover, the sea was a place of chaos that symbolizes opposition to God, which perhaps explains the, its identification with death in Hades, the places where the bodies uh, and the soul in death will likewise yield up their victims to face the final judgment before God's throne. This point is that all will stand before the throne of judgment. John emphasizes that there will be no dis- no distinction since the great and since they will be both great and small. They will stand together before God. Kelly writes this. It is the greatest gathering of human beings in all of history. Not one descendant of Adam and Eve will be missing. This will all be God's final word on the personal, immortal destiny of every soul who has ever lived. So we get through this preset of judgment and we find these views that people will be essentially granted access into life and those who believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior will be given life their names will be written in the book of life and then those who do not will be cast into the lake of fire so the penalty is raised here the penalty for the final judgment is question is raised about believers standing before God to be judged according to their deeds it is clear in John's vision that while all mankind outside of Christ will be judged by the book of their works, believers in Christ are vindicated by the record of their names in the book of life. Many, however, teach that Christians will nevertheless stand in the judgment to have their sins revealed and then pardoned. The basis of this teaching is 2 Corinthians 5.10, which says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Grant Osborne takes this view, we will be faced with our evil deeds, but then forgiven and be rewarded for the good we have done. There are several reasons why I this can be believed as error. First, among the, the Bible's descriptions of forgiveness is the statement that God forgives all of our sins. Indeed, this promise is that is at the heart of the new covenant fulfilled by Christ, for I will be merciful, merciful towards their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. The point of this promise is that God will not keep record of our sins 
of those who have been forgiven through faith in Jesus. God will not even bring up our sins in the future since he has erased them with the ink of Christ's blood. Isaiah uses similar language in saying that you have cast all of my sins behind your back, Isaiah 38, 17. In Psalm 103, 12, David rejoices as far as the east is from the west. So far does he remove our transgressions from us. These statements simply do not square with the doctrine that believers will be shamed by our sins, only to have them be forgiven before God's holy throne. So it is worth noting for the Christian that we do not have to stand and have our sins addressed and shown to us. They have been forgotten. They've been cast away. They have been discarded, wiped clean by the blood of Christ. However, this does come with a final warning in terms of this final judgment, and we should pay heed to it. John's vision of the final judgment concludes with God's ultimate victory. It triumphed over even hell and death themselves, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death was the curse brought on by sin into God's perfect creation in order for Christ to bring the new heaven and new earth of eternal glory. Then he must put an end to the curse of death along with Hades, the abode of the condemned. Paul wrote the last enemy to be destroyed is death. 1 Corinthians 15, 26. John depicts death and Hades as being thrown into the lake of fire where Satan and his beasts were cast for eternal torment. This represents the final and unalterable victory of the triune God in which his ultimate enemies are overcome and subjected to his just wrath. And their threat of God's endless glory and reign is finally and eternally brought to an end. Because of this victory, the final judgment of this day is rejoicing for the holy angels together with God's redeemed people. For then it will be truly declared by the exalted voices in heaven, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. The warning in this final judgment is heeded towards those who are unbelievers. They will be cast into the lake of fire. They will be destroyed. There is no hope for them at this point. They will suffer God's wrath. That is the truth of scripture. That is exactly where we find ourselves and exactly where God will lead us. So as we get to the point and we wrap up Revelation 20, we can get this idea of these things. Now, as I mentioned early, I would re-listen to the beginning of the show maybe a few times. So that way you can put it in your mind, the differences of the millennial reign. Now, I didn't say whether any of them are right or wrong. I did give some uh, you know, arguments for the amillennialist position because that is what I hold to. And I find it to make the most sense logically if we were to apply that to scripture. Now, we've done that and viewed that as our kind of guiding post through this entire book. We have utilized what is scripture telling us and how can we interpret uh, the text in here is to be more symbolic and of uh, signs and symbols than to just be something to be taken literal. That's not to say that our interpretation is wrong. It is simply to say that this is one of many. 
there are other people who interpret things differently. You can read the book of Revelation and, and, and interpret it from a very literal standpoint. Absolutely, you can. It happens. People do it, and that's just fine. But you can't read the book of Revelation with the hermeneutic of literal interpretation and not and then not apply that elsewhere in scripture so you have to be con, you have to be you know concise in how you approach it and you have to be uh equal across all scripture and so if we take you know some of the text to be literal and some of the text to be signs and symbols and to have some sort of symbolic meaning to them or to be describing of something then we apply that view through scripture. So when we get to text like the book of Ezekiel or even Daniel or Isaiah and or Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, or we get to uh, the text where he's telling us to, you know, it'd be better for you to pluck out your eye than to sin or to uh, get to Matthew 24, 25, Mark 13, all these texts uh, describing the end of times, whatever we come across stuff in second Thessalonians four from Paul or first Corinthians or any of these books that describe the end of times, we, we would have to take it, uh, and understand them in the greater scheme of, of the world and the church age. And so that's my position. Um, I'm curious if you guys are listening where you are, you know, I'll have a show post on this. So comment in the comments, what you guys think, and let me know your thoughts and what you hold to pre-millennialist, post-millennialist, amillennialist, and, and why you believe that. Nobody's wrong, at least hopefully, but we'll get to a point where we will all find out the real answer. So, ladies and gentlemen, that is it for this show. I am so blessed to finally get to the point where we have two shows left, chapters 21 and 22. We have some great content lined up for that show. So I cannot wait to bring it forward for your listening ears as we dig into the final uh, part of the book of Revelation, as we will see uh, the, the, uh, the new heaven and the new earth. All things are new. And then that will break uh, at verse 8 in chapter 21. And then we will get into the seventh part of Revelation, which is verses 9 and 21 on through the end of chapter 22. And so we will get all these. And we'll spend a little bit of time, I think, towards the end of chapter 22, looking at that coming soon and really putting an emphasis on that. That is the premise to the book of Revelation, that Jesus Christ will return and he is victorious. So that is the show. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for tuning in. I am so blessed to have you listening. Again, if you'd love to support the show, I would be honored if you would join us on Patreon. And you can do so at patreon.com forward slash undying light for as little as a dollar a month. Come join this awesome family because today's Tuesday and you're getting the show early. If not, you're listening on a regular Friday, Saturday, Sunday, or whenever you put your earbuds in. Guys, I am so thankful to continue to produce this content, so make sure you share it out on social media when you see the posts and uh, comment your favorite contents and, and shows and all that stuff. I look forward to hearing what you guys think. Until next time, I will see you all next week. Same time, same bat channel. We'll see you. God bless.
mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 